Hey, it's Nathan, and this is day 30 of the Bible in 90 Days. And today is a very special episode. In fact, it's one of three special episodes. Episodes 60 and 90 will follow a similar pattern. Today, I'm reviewing all of the books we've covered in the last 30 days. In fact, today brings us almost exactly one-third of the way through Scripture. And so, on day 30, instead of continuing to the next books in the Bible, it's a recap, a recap of the previous books. We begin with Genesis, and it can be summarized like this, the creation and fall of humanity, which is followed by the ensuing moral collapse of the human race, leading to the flood. After the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah. Then there's the Tower of Babel. And finally, Abraham and the covenant. I want to share three important passages from the book. These referenced previous in previous episodes, but bringing them to you here again. Genesis 3, speaking to the serpent after the fall. And I quote, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Skipping to Genesis 19, this one spoken after the flood. And now I establish my covenant with you and, your de- and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again Will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood? Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. Skipping now to Genesis 12 and words spoken to Abram, later named Abraham. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse you, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Genesis ends with the descendants of Abraham living in Egypt. Exodus begins with those same descendants becoming enslaved for a very long time. They were in Egypt over 400 years. God raises up a deliverer, Moses, who leads Israel out of Egypt and begins to teach them the way of God. Some time before, God had met Moses, or maybe I should say Moses had met God at a burning bush near Mount Sinai. In the encounter, God spoke these words to him, Exodus 3. And I'm quoting, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Another quote from the book, and it's a noteworthy one. Israel was given the Ten Commandments, and here's the beginning. You might call it the preamble of the Ten Commandments. Here it is. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then proceed what we remember as the Ten Commandments, or what we know as the Ten Commandments. 
Then the book of Leviticus gives detailed instructions related to worshiping God, including details on sacrifices and sacred celebrations. Instructions in the book also include guidance for health as well as civil conduct. And in Leviticus, or from Leviticus, I've chosen a bit of a strange verse. But Leviticus, but I think you'll understand because Leviticus has a lot to do with sacrifice. And central to sacrifice, and even the diet guidelines, and some other guidelines and laws in Exodus, is blood. So I chose a text on blood from the book of Leviticus. It's chapter 17. You must not eat the blood of any creature, because the life of every creature is its blood. Anyone who eats it must be cut off. Numbers takes us from the desert of Sinai to the borders of Canaan. Twice. The book also indicates that a census of Israel is taken twice, one before leaving the Sinai Desert and the other when near the border of Canaan the second time. Due to unbelief and rebellion, those who left Egypt would not enter the promised land. Instead, that privilege would be given to their children. Instructions are also given regarding the territorial allotments when the land would be settled. A notable verse comes from Balaam's prophecy. You remember King Balak hires a prophet Balaam to, he hopes, curse Israel. Well, in the process, Balaam instead blesses Israel. And here are words from that prophet Balaam. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Words referring to the coming Messiah uttered by Balaam. Deuteronomy contains Moses' farewell instructions as he prepares for his death, after which Joshua will take leadership of Israel. In it, he recounts much of the history of Israel, as well as reinforcing God's instructions to them. What's fascinating about Deuteronomy is the way Moses recounts the history from his perspective. The book ends with Moses' death, which the people mourn for 30 days. Here are final words from the book. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt. To Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Joshua recounts the settling of the land, which includes some remarkable stories, such as crossing the Jordan River in peak wet season, the fall of Jericho, and the sun standing still in a battle against the Amorites. At the beginning of his leadership career, God had told Joshua, and I quote from chapter 1, No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore their ancestors to give them. Early in the book, Joshua has an encounter with the angel of the Lord, similar to Moses' encounter at the burning bush, during which... 
he, Joshua, is instructed to remove his sandals. Again, similar to Moses' encounter at the burning bush. The final chapter records Joshua giving the people a farewell speech in which he recounts God's providential leading and urges them to be faithful, reaffirming the covenant for them. And that's in Joshua 24. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. In the speech, Joshua affirms his own determination to be faithful. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. The people affirm their commitment without hesitation. And I quote, no, we will serve the Lord. Judges carried us from the initial settling of the land, ending with the tragic near loss of the tribe of Benjamin due to heinous behavior. The book, as you likely remember, is a bloody book as Israel waffles between serving God or embracing local pagan customs and gods. This trouble occurred, as chapter 1 notes, because the tribes did not drive out the inhabitants. Worse, Israel seems especially determined to be like the local pagans, often finding themselves in terrible distress because of it. However, in compassion, and I quote, the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to their judges. It is important to note that judges, 1 Samuel, etc., clearly indicate that Israel was never meant to be governed by a strong central power, such as a monarch. Rather, they were to be led by prophets, teachers, and priests to serve God directly. In other words, God intended them to live under maximum personal freedom, simply guided by his wisdom, not subordinated to some central human government, but rather living together in a just, covenant-driven society. Tragically, Judges, all on its own, demonstrates that God's aspirations were never realized for Israel. Probably the most important lines in the book are found in chapter 2. The verse written here, in light of Joshua's death and those in his generation who had initially settled the land. And I quote, after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, that is, died, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt, they followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They aroused the Lord's anger. Ruth provides a beautiful respite from the dark, tragic history of Israel recounted in the Judges, focusing on two characters, a Hebrew woman, Naomi, who becomes widowed in the story, and her devoted Moabite daughter-in-law, Ruth, who, by the way, also becomes widowed, and in the process, also becomes a devout believer in the Hebrew God. Unlike the people of Israel, Ruth, who is a pagan Moabite, is attracted to the God of Israel and chooses to follow him, leaving her family and pagan worship behind in powerful contrast to Israel at the time, who kept pursuing the gods of the local pagan nations. The same Ruth gave birth to King David's grandfather, a connection that ultimately interweaves her life with the story of Jesus, the Messiah yet many centuries in the future. 
Ruth's words of faithfulness to Naomi in chapter 1 and her decision to follow the God of the Hebrews are magnificent, and I quote them. Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. 1 Samuel covers a critical turning point in the history of Israel. They choose monarchy over the leadership of judges, teachers, prophets, and priests. By the way, specifically, they choose kingship or monarchy over God being their leader. And I'm quoting from um, chapter 8. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected. And here it is. But they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. This request for a king, we discover, is especially motivated by two things. First, Samuel's sons are wicked. Secondly, when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us. Those words, by the way, from chapter 12. In following this transition, the book centers strongly around the last judge and prophet, Samuel, following his leadership during the transition to monarchy, and including the history of the first king, Saul, as well as his appointed successor, David. The book includes the remarkable story of David and Goliath, as well as the grace with which David relates to Saul, who hunts him relentlessly. The character contrast between the two men is pronounced, with David revealing a heart of sincere goodness. Some of the most powerful lines in the book, however, are ones spoken by Samuel to King Saul. And I quote, Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Second Samuel follows the remarkable reign of David, beginning with David mourning at the news of Saul and Jonathan's deaths, then being anointed king over Judah, and finally, seven and a half years later, king over all Israel. The book includes a long struggle between the house of David and that of Saul, with David steadily gaining strength. Near the middle of the book, we also read the story of David's son, Absalom, attempting to take the kingdom from his father, but ultimately failing. The moment of greatest heartbreak in the book, however, comes when David has an affair with Bathsheba and then doubles down by arranging for the death of her husband in an effort to cover his tracks. He's sternly rebuked by the prophet Nathan, where perhaps some of the most important lines in the book are spoken. And I quote, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. First Kings picks up the history of Israel under monarchy with the rise of Solomon, 
takes us through a national split between the tribe of Judah and the other ten tribes, resulting in the kingdom of Judah under Rehoboam and the kingdom of Israel under Jeroboam, son of Nebat. The Levites were not included in this count because they did not have their own tribal territory, but were dispersed among the tribes. Following the split, 1 Kings recounts the history of both nations with a special emphasis on the kingdom of Israel. The book ends with the death of two kings, Ahab, king of Israel, and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Aside from the division of the nation into two separate kingdoms, three notable elements of the book are, one, the most, uh, mostly illustrious reign of Solomon, and then the seeds of the kingdom of Israel's demise, planted by Jeroboam when he created two golden calves as the center of worship for the people of Israel, and the powerful prophetic ministry of Elijah within the kingdom of Israel. Solomon's reign includes multiple building projects, including a magnificent temple that superseded the wilderness tabernacle. Of note is Solomon's magnificent prayer at the dedication of this magnificent temple. And it begins like this, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You've kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. These words, a little bit later, are also worth noting, recording Elijah's encounter with God on Mount Sinai from chapter 19. After the fire came a gentle whisper when Elijah heard it. He pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And finally, 2 Kings. The last book completed within the last 30 days begins with the ministry of Elijah, his being taken to heaven in a chariot, and Elisha the Tishbite taking up his prophetic ministry. The book details the fall of both kingdoms, the first to fall, Israel, in chapter 17, the second is Judah, which at the end of the book is found in captivity in Babylon. Each kingdom's fall can be credited to a significant degree to a few major players. For Israel, it began with the golden calves introduced in 1 Kings by Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And then in 2 Kings, the rebellious reigns of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, or I should say, rebellious reign of King Ahab and his wife Jezebel as they were together. For Judah, the reign of Hezekiah and his son Manasseh are the final turning point. Interspersed in the midst of all this, however, is the incredible ministry of Elisha and the countless miracles that attended his ministry, which included relatively basic miracles like the widow's oil supply or the purified stew to dramatic miracles like Naaman's healing from leprosy or the raising of the Shulamite's son. Of note are the words of the four men with leprosy who discovered the empty Aramean camp outside Samaria. And I quote, What we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. And that's it for today's episode. See you in episode 31.